Welcome to the Edible Alpha podcast series, your source for actionable insights for making money in food. The Edible Alpha podcast is hosted by the Food Finance Institute, where our mission is to help food businesses raise the money they need to grow. Through our podcast, FFI staff talks to a wide range of stakeholders about what it really takes to grow a financially viable food or farm business. Hey folks, welcome to the Edible Alpha podcast. I'm Andy Larson, farm finance consultant for the Food Finance Institute and Wisconsin Small Business Development Centers. I'm really happy to be here today with Cliff McConville. Cliff's a, he's a great farmer and a good friend and colleague. Uh, he produces pasture-raised, well, pasture-raised animal proteins of all varieties at Allgrass Farms in the western suburbs of Chicago. Welcome to the Edible Alpha podcast, Cliff. Thanks, Andy. I'm glad, happy to be here. So just so everybody knows, I've known Cliff for a, a goodly number of years now. We've done some farm business together. We've done some non-farm business together. We've sat on boards together. But even so, Cliff, I always like to begin these things with uh, the sort of farm origin story. Can you give us the basic profile of your farm business and how you got here? Sure. It's kind of a winding route, uh, as you know, but, um, you know, I came from a non-farming background. Um, I worked in the insurance business for 25 years in downtown Chicago and for a couple of different companies. And part of that, um, you know, I commuted into the city for many years. And at the very end of my my last insurance job, I was fortunate to be able to uh, work out of my home. And at the time, uh, you know, we'd purchased about eight and a half acres of land. We had a little, what I'm going to call a a suburban horse farm um, in the northwest suburbs of Chicago. And so once I was working out of my home, all of a sudden I didn't have these two to three hours of daily commute downtown that I had for many years. And, you know, it gave me a little more time. Yeah. Gave me some time to do something different besides sit on a train and work all the time. Um. So that's when I got interested in farming. And really, you know, I credit my sister who lives out in California. I always consider her to be sort of one of these left-leaning California liberals. And she uh, sent me a book. Yeah. <laughs> you know you know the type, right? Uh, she sent me a book. Um, actually, the first thing she sent me one year for Christmas present was the movie, the documentary Food, Inc. And I'm sure you've probably seen mm-hmm. that, right? So it got me kind of thinking, you know, mm-hmm. been a while. Be, yeah, exactly. We should be eating better. This is probably, I think, 2008, 2009 and introduced me to this character named Joel Salatin, who is briefly featured in the movie. Um, so I kind of it kind of got my brain thinking that I needed to eat better. And, and, and then the next year she sent me the book Omnivore's Dilemma and by Michael Pollan. Mm-hmm. That was really, for me, a game changer. I, I opened that book up right after I got it. I started reading it, couldn't put it down. And really, the, the middle, whole middle section of the book, you know, where Michael Pollan visits uh, Joel Salatin's farm in Virginia and spends a week there, you know, moving chickens and, you know, beef and all that. I, I was like, you know, that sounds pretty, really interesting. So I started doing a little more research on Joel Salatin, and he'd written a whole bunch of books. And one of the books that he wrote... Yeah was a book called You Can Farm. And I thought, oh, maybe I'll... So I, I ordered the book, read it, and it started getting me thinking, you know, I've got eight acres here. I can maybe raise a few chickens, a few beef. I had, at the time, we had one super old, like 30-year-old horse that nobody rode. He was <laughs> blind, you know. 
I'm like, you know, maybe it's time that he retire. You know, we retire him to you know the horse cemetery, and and so that was the year that I bought. You know, so I bought four little beef calves, and I raised like 25 broiler chickens, and you know, maybe 25 hens. And this was uh, 2011 that I did that. So that's kind of for how, clarity's sake. This isn't normally happening. This isn't typical on 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 acreages in the northwestern suburbs, correct? <laughs> it's not typical. You know, we were lucky that we lived in the the village we lived in was Barrington Hills, and so they're very flexible. I mean, most people that had property out there had horses. A lot of people had horses. And there were some big, what I'm going to say, very big horse farms, you know, commercial horse farms where they raised race horses. We were on one of these little oh, plots okay. back, back in the poor side of, of town, you know, that we just had a basic house <laughs> and eight acres. Um, but the village was very flexible. You could have people, I know people that had llamas, you know, people that had cows, you know, one guy had up the street from us had like a roping arena and he had steers back there because I know they got into our backyard <laughs> once and he'd had a little shoot. He'd go, you know, he was a cardiologist. He'd come home from work and he'd go out there and rope steers, you know, for, for fun. Um, but it was kind of a unique place. <laughs> Obviously. Yeah. Everybody had animals that didn't matter what kind of animals you had. They were, they were fine with that. So, yeah. Okay, cool. Um, so anyway, that's how we got started. That's, that was it. You know, I would say, you know, I always had an inclination for working outside, even though I spent all these years working in an office and, you know, climbing the corporate ladder. And I always liked to be outside. I like to work with my hands. You know, I wasn't really sure that I'm going to like raising animals. So I thought, well, I'll give it a try, you know, on a small scale. And that's, uh, that's kind of how we got started. And, uh, you know, it just grew from there. What started out is just, I'm going to grow a little food for my family uh, at the time. And then I started, I said, well, let's maybe make a little business out of this. We'll sell some eggs, a, a couple of sides of beef. And that's, uh, so we started selling commercially in 2012, just out of the house. We actually okay. processed, I think I did maybe like four or 500 broiler chickens that year. We just, we'd process them ourselves in the driveway and people would come to pick them up that had pre-ordered them. It was all kind of based on who ordered them. And uh, so that was my first experience butchering chickens. Um, so that was exciting. I, you know, <laughs> good thing about YouTube is you can Always learn how to- a formative experience. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah um, that's right. <laughs> um, so anyway, it kind of grew from there. Originally, our intention was just to raise, uh, you know, kind of like what Joel Salter was doing at his farm, Polyface, was to do a little grass-fed beef, some, uh, you know, pastured broiler chickens. Uh, we had a few, I think we raised maybe 20 hogs. We had a couple acres of woods on the farm. We raised the, the hogs out in the woods there. And then some and laying hens for eggs. And that was pretty much the model that we started with. Um, within a few months, uh, we started getting all these people asking about raw milk. And raw mm. milk was not even on my radar screen. Never had drank raw milk, never had it, didn't know anything about it. But after, I think it's kind of funny. I think I got like 30 inquiries and I started putting them in a little folder you know, a raw milk folder <laughs> on the computer. And I'm the like, suggestion right. box. Exactly, right. <laughs> and so after the 30th one, I'm like, eh, maybe I should research this raw milk thing. So I went down and visited a farm that was doing raw milk. There wasn't many. This one was down uh, the south side of Chicago. was uh, the way southern suburbs, I would say. It was South Pork Ranch. 
which is weird. Obviously, they raise a lot of pork. Um, and I went down and they said, oh, come down, you know, visit us while we're milking. Uh, at the time, I didn't realize that they're trying to sell the farm. And so they were welcome to any visitors that had an interest in it. So I spent, you know, three or four hours mm. with them. They were milking maybe 12 cows and got an idea of it. And then I watched a couple of YouTube videos. And I'm like, ah, oh, this looks pretty easy. <laughs> Little did I know what I was getting myself into. Right? Um, so that's how we got started in raw milk. That was kind of an add-on to the plan. What little plan there was, the raw milk was was certainly not not in the original plans. Uh, but we went. I finally got found it. two Guernsey, Guernsey cows. We wanted to raise Guernsey cows just because they had very high quality milk. We had done some research on the whole A2 protein. I read the book, um, The Devil in the Milk. And, you know, oh. are you familiar with that at all, that book? Interesting. I'm not science. familiar with the book, but I'm familiar with the difference in the proteins. Yeah. The beta casein protein. So A1 versus A2. There was a lot of stuff. I mean, the book came out probably, I think, in maybe 2008 or something. And, and there's been more and more awareness of the you know, the problems that people have digesting A1 milk. So, you know, Guernsey was the one major breed that did not get affected by the mutation that, you know, created the A1 milk. And so I was always looking for Guernseys. The problem with Guernseys, among other things, is they're very difficult to find. Hard, you know, hardly anybody raises Guernseys anymore. So I did finally find gotcha. two Guernseys. And um, on a fateful day back in May of 2012, I went up to Dodgeville, Wisconsin, picked up these two Guernseys and we're in the raw milk business, um, and we haven't looked back since. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, before we like plow down the the raw milk path, like you're, but you're you're not still on the you know the original homestead where you got all this started, right? You you correct. you right. had enough um, following that you needed to grow. Correct. Yep. Yep. So, um, yeah, so I can, I can talk about that. So I, I think by 20, so 2012, we had the four beef calves and we had orders at that, like in spring of 2012 for like, you know, probably like 10 or 12 beef. And I'm like, all right, I got to have more beef and I got to have more land. So we actually, I don't know if you, you ever visit, we, we went and leased 20 acres, actually it was 40 acres, but 20 acres of pasture, which was like five minutes from our house. And okay. we we moved the beef over there just so we could keep all of that eight and a half acres for our dairy cows. And then we moved the broiler chickens over there that spring. And then um, the next year we moved the um, the pigs over there because there was about 20 acres of woods. It was a perfect area to raise pigs on pasture. Um, so that was 2012. Cool. We were at the point, at that point, we, you know, by the end of the year, we were milking four cows. And then in 2013, we were up to like, we had six cows, I think maybe begin running in the 24th and we were running out of milk. You know, we were selling out. We had a huge waiting list because we started a herd share program. So uh, we mm -hmm. were looking around for, you know, for more land. And I was um, ideally something that had a real dairy barn on it, you know, and, you know, plenty of pasture land. So, uh, so that's when we um, we stumbled onto this forest preserve land that was probably about 10, 10 minutes from our house uh, on a very busy suburban highway. Uh, I'd been passing by that for years, and it had a beautiful dairy barn that the forest preserve was not maintaining. They were going to let it go. It had some huge holes in the roof, um, and they were leasing out all the mm. land to a conventional corn and soybean grower. 
So I'm like, huh, I wonder if they would lease some of that to me to, uh, you know, to put into, you know, pasture. And so that began the journey, the long journey of us trying to secure that land uh, from the Forest Preserve of Kane County. Um, so it took us, I think it was about 18 months from the first time I sent them a letter, which was in 2013, to actually signing a lease after many meetings. I had probably at least two public uh, hearings and probably three or four meetings with the staff of the Forest Preserve before we finally ironed out all the details. But that was an 18-month journey. Um, and we finally wow. signed the lease on that land in the um, like February of 2015. So that was, uh, but that was, you know, we needed that land to, to continue growing. And of course, I still had my, my insurance job. Um, but the good thing was I was able to do that kind of in my spare time, you know, when I wasn't farming. <laughs> so, uh, uh, <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I really, I couldn't have done that if I didn't have a job that really gave me a lot of time flexibility. Um, which working out of the house, that job did give me a lot of flexibility to do farming and then go do a conference call with a client and go back to farming and send out a few proposals at night. Um, so it was, uh, it was conducive to, to starting up a farm. Um, yep. I, I bet there weren't a lot of other people that had uh, conversations with their insurance executive right after he'd got done milking cows. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but I was fortunate again, you know, I didn't go into it with a lot of, you know, what I'm going to say, I, I didn't have a lot of money around to invest in the farm, but the good thing is for the first five years, I didn't have to take any money out of the farm to pay bills, you know? So really my job was paying all my bills and I had good insurance and all that. So, um, so everything that we were, you know, as we were growing the farm business, we were able to reinvest all that into the farm. Um, but, um, and you know, the great thing, you know, and we've talked about this really the reason that we grew so quickly after that, after we got that forest preserve land was because it had a, such a great location on a very busy suburban highway. We were within 45 minutes of downtown Chicago and, yep. you know, it was very picturesque You know, you have this, you know, old red barn, you know, historic red barn with trees. And, you know, there was an old garage attached to it that we turned into our farm store and, it was just a nice place for people to visit. They'd see cows out, you know, on the grass and chickens and, you know, they could walk around. So that was really, I think, what, you know, really revved up our sales was that it was just a good ambiance, you know, for, uh, for a farm visitor to come and see the farm, see the animals and, you know, buy product in the store. Location, 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 for sure. Exactly. exactly. After this, like, the you've had multiple growths, you've had multiple uh, expansions. And all of a sudden you're on this nice and beautiful piece of property. You've got a lot of people going by in any given day. And we're talking about tens of thousands of cars of any given day, but like the raw milk is still one of those enterprises that although it was never in your initial plan, it sounds like it was one of the things that just all of a sudden it made customers beat down your door, right? You still have people that come in from miles around and they line up early in the morning, like it's concert tickets. Right. So I, I, can you give the folks in our audience just a little bit more of a, of an impression of what's the big deal about raw milk? Why, why are people lining up for this stuff? What are the pros and cons compared to, 
you know, conventional milk from the store, Cliff. Okay. Well, I mean, again, I was new to the raw milk thing, but once I started doing research, I mean, I've been drinking nothing but raw milk, obviously, for the last 11 years since I bought my first cow. But, right. you know, there are, you know, there's a lot of, a fair amount of documentation about the nutritional advantages of raw milk over pasteurized milk. You know, so, you know, if you get into the whole probiotic thing, so yes, it does have active, you know, um, you know, bacterial cultures that are going to help, you know, what I'm going to say is the gut flora. Um, so that's an advantage of it. A lot of the uh, nutrients in it are more available in their raw form than after you've pasteurized it or cooked it, essentially, you know. Um, okay. In particular, uh, the enzyme that breaks down lactose is the in, that's the marker for pasteurized milk. So if if uh, if the they ever test milk to see if it's fully pasteurized, they check that enzyme, and if it's been deactivated, they'll say yes, this milk is fully pasteurized. But it also makes it less digestible. Interesting. Yeah. So that, that ah. enzyme that takes down the lactose is deactivated in the pasteurization process. So that's one of the reasons why a lot of people, I think, especially as they go into adulthood, have a hard time uh, digesting milk. Um, so there's a digestibility issue. And frankly, I mean, you've had raw milk. You've had our raw milk, I'm sure. And it's, there's just a huge taste difference between our milk and the milk that you buy in the store. You know, it's... It's very rich. It's got a lot of butter fats. Um, it just, frankly, tastes better. I mean, people that drink our milk, they're like, man, I can't ever go back to drinking store-bought milk just because it, you know, it just tastes <laughs> so fat, you know. Um, so I think it tastes better. Um, it's better for you. I think it's pretty clear that it's better for you. Uh, a lot of people like to make stuff out of it. You know, they make kefir, they make yogurt, they make cheese. And so you really, it's hard to do that with store-bought pasteurized milk and particular organic milk. You know, most of the organic milk that you buy in the supermarkets is ultra pasteurized, you know, so they can extend the shelf life mm. on it. And so if that ultra pasteurized milk, I mean, that doesn't even need to be refrigerated. I mean, you can put that up. I mean, they put it in the, in the cooler, but I think you can, it can be unrefrigerated for and sit until you open it for several weeks. But that, I think the ultra pasteurization even takes more you know, out of the, you know, the flavor of the milk. Um, and, you know, it, so for all those reasons, you know, plus people know where the milk is coming from. They see our cows. Our cows are out eating grass every day. You know, we don't, they're not 100% grass-fed. They're probably like 90% grass-fed. We do give them a little bit of organic grain when we're milking them. But um, yep. I think most people realize that the cows, especially people that are well-educated, realize that the milk you get in the store is mostly coming now from, big CAFOs, you know, even the organic milk is coming from yep. CAFO. And so, um, you know, I think for all those reasons, there's, there's strong demand for raw milk. And then you couple that with, there's a very, very limited supply. I mean, last time I checked, there's only 11 farms in Illinois that are licensed to, that have a raw milk permit like we do. Now I'm, I know there's a lot more that are selling it, you know, having two or three cows and are kind of selling it on the down low. But um, sure. know, if somebody in Illinois is looking for raw milk, you know, and they're in the Chicago market, there's whatever, 8 million people in Chicago, and we're the closest one and one of the few that, that has it legally available. So you talk about limited, you know, Makes it a lot easier supply. to hear about you. Yes, exactly. Limited supply, big demand 
you know, it's no, it's no surprise that we sell out every day and we just can't keep up with the demand. Um, and we haven't for pretty much ever. I mean, there's been, I remember like there's been three or four periods, usually brief periods where we had more milk than we had demand, but usually they're fleeting, uh, unfortunately. And so, um, so that's why people <laughs> line up every day, you know, so, I mean, it's crazy. I remember getting there one morning at like, it was probably a little before six on a Sunday morning. I was milking with Anna and there was already people there. I'm like, really? You don't have to be here at six. We don't open till <laughs> nine. <laughs> oh gosh. But, <laughs> when the customer is getting there before the dairy farmer. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Well, so, you know, milk in general is not one of those things that people think about as being, you know, this like this fancy product. I mean, oftentimes I've even heard it talked about being like a loss leader in the grocery store, you know, sold for less than the cost of production in order to get more people in the store. That's, you know, supposedly why they always put the milk cooler all the way in the back. So customers have to walk through the sections of all the you know, the package stuff that has higher profit margins built in and all that. But the market positioning for your milk, your raw milk is quite a bit different. Like, so uh, who is buying it? What are they? And, and I guess for comparison's sake, what are they paying for it compared to conventional milk? I mean, if it's a lot more, why aren't there more people getting into this game with you? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, I think, um, I mean, clearly for us, we've we've always wanted to make a profit on raw milk. Um, yeah. You know, we mark, we want to make a profit on every one of our enterprises, and we track expenses and revenue by enterprise. And um, you know, but for us, you know, we've always charged what we thought was the the market price. You know, and and the market price mm-hmm. changes. You know, I think we started out at we were selling it for ten dollars a gallon back in twenty twelve. Um, and we've had periodic price increases that we just raised it now, you know, we sell it by the half gallon. So back then it was $5 per half gallon. We just raised our price this year. Actually, we've had two price increases this year to, um, $8 per half gallon now. So $16 a gallon. Um, and, and I'm hoping we're making money at that. We did an analysis halfway through the year and we realized that we, we weren't making money on raw milk at our old price, which was $7, you know, a half gallon or $14 a gallon, um, primarily because of the labor. I mean, we just, it's so, it's such a labor intensive enterprise, you know, relative to everything else we do. Um, you know, we've grown, there was a point where raw milk back in the early days, that was 50% of our farm revenue came from raw milk and then everything else made up the rest. Wow. Uh, I never really wanted to be super dependent on raw milk, um, but it drives a lot of volume, uh, customer volume. Uh, but we're now, we're, we've got it actually, it's down to 15% of our revenue comes from raw milk, um, which is where I, I'd like it to be less than 20%. Just because it's, uh, you know, again, it's a risky, you know, we talk about the fact that it's, you know, it's profitable and it's nutritious, but it also carries a little bit higher risk, you know, uh, you know, compared to other foods and, you know, we mm-hmm. do everything we can to make sure that the milk is clean and, you know, we don't have any problems, but you never know. I mean, it's one of those things that it's always out there and we have to carry a special insurance policy. There's only one insurance company in the country that'll insure raw milk farms and it's pricey, you know? Wow. I think we, yeah. I think we spend 
that policy is like $28,000 a year. No, it's it's all of our liabilities. So what we do Whoa! is we shift, <laughs> we shift it all of our liability to this one. It's a, essentially it's just a general commercial liability policy with, uh, and we have the umbrella on top of it to give us two million dollars of coverage, uh, and we strip that out of our farm policy. So we don't have any liability in our farm policy. All of it's on this policy. So it does cover the whole farm. But there's essentially the only difference between this policy and every other farm insurance policy is it doesn't have an exclusionary rider for raw milk. Um, you know, so it it covers raw milk liability like anything else, any other liability we would have on the farm. Um, so so your, your spreading of liability risk through that insurance policy, it's costing you, you know, almost as much in a month as what a, you know, a typical farm that isn't doing raw milk would pay like in a year. Probably, yeah. I mean, before we had that, now I would say when we opened the farm store, our liability went way up as well from our basic farm. I can remember when we started out, before we had a store, our farm policy, which covered everything liability, in, including the house, you know, when we were running the farm from the oh. house, I think it was like $3,500 a year for our, all of our insurance. That was, And that was the product liability, that was the home, the livestock, the equipment, everything was like 35. Now we didn't have a lot of equipment then. So, you know, that's, you know, probably like comparing apples to oranges, but, um, sure. but it, I mean, I'm assuming, I think that this is probably if we were to, you know, go back to the liability, having it on our farm policy and we didn't have raw milk, we'd probably be spending, you know, 10,000 to $12,000 for liability coverage instead of the 30,000. Okay. Yeah. Um, but well, and to be fair, you have a, a lot of exposure directly to the consuming public that you know a, a commodity farmer does not. Correct. Yep. Yeah. Because we have the store. I mean, the fact that we have the store. I mean, and and we have we've had a couple of slip and falls, and you know we just send those to the insurance company, and they probably settle with them. I don't know, but you know um, we haven't had any major you know, <laughs> problems. I did have a, you know, I did have a cow get out and onto the road once, and somebody supposedly hit him. Um, this was at our other place, and you know, so that was another liability issue. Um, but oh, yeah, man. so you've got <laughs> you've got to deal with that. But you know, back to the raw milk. It's um, I think it's a, it's super labor intensive, and you know, we start adding up all the hours. You know, you're, we're milking twice a day. You know, we got the cows out in the pasture. Somebody's got sometimes. It, they're way out. Like right now, they're like probably like three quarters of a mile from the barn. So somebody's got to go out there like okay. 35 minutes before milking time to bring the cows. In. <laughs> um, and then you got to milk them. The milking <laughs> itself doesn't take that long. But then you got to, you know, clean the barn, run them back out to the pasture, which is another, you know, 35, 40 minutes if they're way out there. Um, you know, you got it, it, it's a you you grew up on a dairy farm, so you know that dairy cows are labor intensive, you know, this, so I think we're spending, we've actually figured out we're probably spending 12 right now, 12 to 14 man hours a day, you know, milking 20, I think we're milking 23, 24 cows now. Um, but okay. it's just, it's just so very that tracks as far as the time intensity is concerned, but like yep. so many, yep. so many conventional dairies have, you know, 10 times that number of cows. Right. Exactly. Right. Right. And so that's that's the problem too is we're milking and we never really wanted to milk more than twenty four cows, you know. And I don't. We've got a we set up a four stall you know parlor, 
So that's, you know, four shifts or six shifts of four is about as many as we want to do right now. And, you know, how much available shed loafing area we have and pasture land we have for the dairy cows. Um, I think that's about as many as we're going to milk. So we're probably, you know, we're going to peak out at 80, 90 gallons a day. And, and that's, and then we'll just, if people keep wanting milk, we'll just keep raising the price, I guess, <laughs> until they stop wanting <laughs> I mean, I heard, I know out, okay. out in California, they're charging $20 a gallon for raw milk. I was reading somebody else is charging $18 out in North Carolina. So I don't feel bad charging $16 a gallon. Um, you know, I guess we'll just kind of see. Got it. As long as we're making money on it, that's the key. Um, we have envisioned, like yeah. a, a couple of times we said, like the other night I was milking and I, and they were really, we've got some heifers that we're training right now to come into the parlor and they're a mess and crazy. And, and we're like, we were there till like 7.30. And I was like, man, life would be so easy without these dairy cows. Um, <laughs> you know, that's what we're known for. You know, that's the thing. That's like our center. Everybody knows us for our raw milk. And so it's hard to, to give that up um so absolutely yeah so and it's and it's, now like it's it's hard to get out of you <laughs> yeah exactly right right exactly so you you know how it was you guys milk cows and you do kind of get attached to those cows but uh it's uh it's i think that's why when i look around i'm like why aren't more people doing this because it is a lot of work i mean it's a 365 day a year two times a day you're milking I know some guys go to one time, you know, once once a day milking, and we've looked at doing that. I tried it once; it was a disaster. We lost a lot of our production, which we knew we were going to lose some of it. But oh, you know, for us, it just doesn't make any sense to do once a day milking. Um, maybe someday it will, but right now it's uh, it's not in the not in the cards. Okay, yeah. got it. Yeah, they are uh, charismatic critters. That's for mm -hmm. sure, and I, you know. And that, that attachment that you have to them, you have to <laughs> – so when you ask the average person off the street if you'd like to hang out with cows for an extended period of time every day or you'd like to be able to go on vacation once or twice a year, most of them are going to choose the vacation. And there's that there's that few of us that will choose the cows. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, that's the what I would call the old school. You know, it's funny. We have a lot of young people that want to come work for us so they can learn how to milk cows, right? And I always have a – whenever we have an opening, I have people that want – but the funny thing is they just don't know what they're getting themselves into, right? You know, I think you know, they, have this, they have the vision of, oh, you know, I'm going to be walking behind these cows out into the pasture, you know, a couple times a day and moving around. And, you know, they don't realize, you know, all the poops you got to clean up and pulling calves out of them and, you know, all the health issues that they have and, you know, keeping the milk clean and cleaning all the, you know, the milking equipment twice a day, cleaning the barn twice a day. And then, of course, all these young people want to have, you know, oh, I've got to be off every other weekend and I need vacations. And I'm like, really, you don't have any idea what it's like to be a real dairy farmer. You know, the, the real old school dairy <laughs> farmer never had a vacation, right? Until you, you had kids, enough kids that, you know, could handle everything while you took off a few days. So it's, uh, yeah, it's interesting. It's, it's definitely hard work. Uh, that's the hardest thing we do is, uh, is the dairy operation. Well, so in addition to the dairy, you've got a whole variety of other meat livestock out there on grass at your farm. So you, you got your beef, you got your hogs, you got your turkeys, your broiler chickens, you got laying hens. So 
How do these other livestock enterprise compare? You, you mentioned that the, the dairy used to be by far the majority of your revenues. So like in terms of sales, but also in terms of profitability, where do these other meat animals uh, sit for the bottom line of the farm? Okay. Yeah. So I'm actually, I just pulled up while we're talking our, you know, kind of running sales spreadsheet for the year. So, so actually our largest animal enterprise that we have, and I'll, I'm, I'm kind of saying animal enterprise because it's, uh, you know, is beef. We sell more beef, you know, than we do sell uh, milk. So in fact, for this year, based on okay. where we're at mid year, uh, I guess I don't have the percentages on this, but so beef, you know, we're projecting we're going to sell $522,000 worth of beef, um, but only $325,000 worth of milk. So beef is by far, oh. you know, and it's growing. So we're projecting our beef to grow at almost 38% this year in milk. Let's see, milk's at 12%. <laughs> so, you know, so and, okay. and we spend maybe an hour a day, like we have, you know, beef, moving the beef to new pastures, setting up new water, pulling their minerals over is like maybe an hour a day, probably less than that. You know, so, and it's, so it's much more profitable. Beef is by far our most profitable enterprise. Uh, and it's growing the fastest. Interesting. Now, yeah. 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 So, so that's, you know, we, that's another thing we have, you know, we have to keep in perspective is that the beef, you know, we want to grow the beef. We love beef. Beef is super low maintenance. We never have health problems with the beef. You know, it's just, a, it's like night and day. It's like a whole different breed of animal than, uh, than those darn dairy cows. Um, and then behind that, <laughs> <laughs> um, actually almost the same revenue that we get from beef. We have, you know, as you know, we have this farm store, we sell, I would say like 75% of the stuff we sell in the farm store we produce, but we do source mm -hmm. other you know, produce from other farms, um, you know, pickled items from bushel and packs, uh, you know, other dairy products, cheeses. We have a lot of uh, cheese that we're selling now from other local farms. So that actually, that what I'm going to call what we call the farm store enterprise is now um, about the same as beef. It's I'm, I'm projecting that's going to be $500,000, a little over $500,000 this year. So, um, so that's a big enterprise for us. It's harder. The margins on that are not as good as the stuff that we produce ourselves, uh, but we can control it. Mm -hmm. more easily, you know, and then behind that, we have the laying, lay, laying hen enterprise. So that's a little over $200,000 of eggs that we'll sell, uh, broilers, broiler chickens. We do about $200,000 a year of broiler chickens, uh, pigs. The pasture pigs is about 180. I'm projecting about 180 this year for pig pork sales. We do turkeys, our most margin-wide, from a percentage perspective, turkey is our most profitable product, and we sell about $100,000 worth of turkey. <coughs> most of that we sell for Thanksgiving, fresh Thanksgiving turkeys. And we rent some land out, we do some Got vegetables, it. you know, but those are the major enterprises. Um, so, you know, I, again, raw milk is the one we've had a, a hard time. Once we apply all the labor um, to that, enterprise that it probably deserves you know it's harder for us to make a profit we've been marginally profitable on with raw milk uh for the last couple of years now we just took this price increase our production is actually up we had a whole bunch of heifers calved over the last month and so i'm hoping that uh for the last six months of the year we should be you know fairly profitable with the raw milk with all those combination of all those things um, typically it's been production problems. We just not able to have a consistent 
consistently high production. We have demand. You know, the demand is always there. We almost always sell out. It's just keeping our production up where we need it. So you you just did something sort of magical. Um, I, I want all the farmers who are listening to this to, you know, I want to put a finer point on it. It's like you just were able to rail off uh, both the sales and the profit margins of every individual enterprise that you have on your farm. It wasn't just the one big bucket of sales from everything for the whole year. You're breaking this down piece by piece and understanding how these different puzzle pieces fit together to make up the profitability of your farm. And that is something that I think all of us as farmers, myself included, could really learn from um, because we are very seldom taught that we have to go to that level of analysis. And your your financial management background has brought to you to a point where you're able to make much better real-time decisions as a result of that kind of breakdown than you otherwise might if it was all just, you know, what was on the tape at the store at the end of the day. Yes. So I think, um, as you know, we've, we've come a long ways. Um, actually, this year, you know, uh, with your assistance, we really got dug into the enterprise as a costing of each enterprise. Um, in the past, we all, I would say we always track sales by enterprise very closely because we have a, we have a point of sale system in the store called Revel. And Revel allows mm-hmm. me, I can run a report any time of the day, like I can on my phone. I can pull up, like, oh, how are they doing today in sales? And I can actually, if I want to dig into it, which I normally don't during the day, I look at total sales. But it does break down sales by enterprise by any time period. So I can go, and usually I run a report every month at the end of the month to see how things are looking um, by enterprise. And so we've always, I would say, I've always tracked the sales by enterprise, but I've never really up until this year sat down and gone through the, you know, I would do this at the end of the year. Um, looked at try to figure out which enterprises are profitable and uh, assign, you know, allocate the cost. But this year we've been doing it really almost on a monthly basis. Because um, last year, you know, we've been profitable, I would say marginally profitable for the last four, five years since 2017. But last year, you know, after the COVID year, we weren't really sure how much to produce. And then we, we, we had a little bit of a downturn in revenue uh, and then all of our expenses were up last year. And I kind of knew that was happening yeah. during the year, but I didn't really. I, my 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 psyche was telling me, you know, we need to increase prices because costs are going up, everything's going up, and we didn't do it and, until the end of the year. And I ran the numbers like, man, we lost money last year. I mean, we didn't lose a ton of money, but we lost some money, and so that really was a good incentive or you know reason for us to really dig in this year and start doing a monthly running the financials every month and trying to figure out, you know, where we're at with each of the enterprises. So, um, so that is something that we started doing this year. And, and I think it's really helping us. And based on the, those numbers, we've actually taken two price increases. We took one at the beginning of the year back in January, knew that we needed to take a price increase. Some things we haven't changed prices in five, six years. Um, and then right. we just, once we ran the numbers through June, we're like, wow, we need to take another price increase because we're still not making money in all the enterprises. And so uh, we did, that's when we raised the milk, for example, we raised the eggs up by a dollar a dozen, pretty much across the different sizes. Um, so we pretty much okay. took a 15% price increase, I think in, in the middle of the summer in late June and early July. And so, yeah, I think we're starting to uh, see the effects of that. 
Okay. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. So, um, yeah, great, great, you know, great role modeling right there, Cliff, for everybody who's listening. (laughs) Um, Another thing that I wanted to make sure we put a finer point on is you talked about, you know, being on rented ground in rented facilities. And, you know, that could be a really nice thing in your early years of business, right? Because, you know, you went through this whole process and there's, there's less capital outlay for things like land and infrastructure and all that kind of stuff. Um, so as you are progressing in your time with the Forest Preserve, has your, has your rental arrangement with the Forest Preserve like stayed the same or has that had to change over the years? And I, and in addition to that, my bigger question is like you, you were talking about the barn with holes in the roof and everything. So there's clearly some improvements that you had to make when you came on to the Bruner Family Forest Preserve as well. So how the heck do you get improvements done, especially if you need to finance them on a place that you don't own? Right. Well, you know, that that was probably one of the trickiest things that we had to deal with. So when we first approached the Forest Preserve about renting that land and using that barn, you know, as I as I think I mentioned, there was probably three 10 foot holes in the roof of the barn. And the, the Forest Preserve at first, they were like, oh, so if you want to you're going to fix the roof. And, and it actually had it's an old one of these old bank barns, you know, so the, the Fieldstone Foundation, the original foundation you know, the, on the bank side was crumbling, you know, there was a lot of cracks and water coming in into the lower level of the basement of the barn, you know, where the, where the cows would be milked. So mm-hmm. they told me, they told me from there, like, Oh, well, we got an estimate. It's going to cost $200,000. I said, well, I mean, I'm not going to put $200,000 into your barn, but if you put $200,000 into your barn, then I will pay you, a, you know, a, a rental to rent it from you know, so I think they already had uh, they had an interest in in saving the barn because it's kind of a historic structure. Um, they okay. didn't really have, they didn't have a use for the barn though until we came along, and so I think that was part of our negotiation was they invested the two hundred thousand dollars. They wanted to do it anyway. I think we just gave them a reason and actually a way to get their money back um, for investing mm. in the barn, and then you know, and then we were paying them, you know. We have a pretty unique lease with them. It was something that we negotiated over many, many months. Um, you know, so essentially the deal is that they they invested two hundred thousand in the barn, but just the, for the essentially just the roof and just the foundation. They jacked up the barn and put a whole new one hundred and forty foot concrete foundation wall on that one side on the bank side of the of the barn. And then what we ended up doing was they rented us the land, uh, 160 acres at less than market value. They were renting it. It's, it's prime farmland, you know, lowland farmland, very productive. Okay. They were leasing it out to a, the corn and bean guy for 200, I think $280 an acre. And the first year okay. we took it over, they leased it to us for $50 an acre. So I told them, hey, you know, we're going to have to put ah, it right. So it went, it went from 50 the first year, 100 the second year, and 150 the third year. And that's where it's at now. So we're paying 150 an acre for the land rent piece of it. Now, they weren't going to obviously and they're going to make their money back on that, but what we did do agree to do, which probably in retrospect I'm kicking myself for was we agreed to give them 5% of the farm store <laughs> sales as rent. Uh, in addition to that. 
So that was, and the idea was that 5% of the farm store sales was going to long-term pay for the roof and the barn repairs. Um, and so, so we agreed to that and that wasn't much money in the first couple of years before the farm store really took off, you know, so, so they invested the 200,000. I think, you know, I remember the first few years we were paying hardly any rent and we didn't take all the land at once. So we, we phased the land in, we took the, there's a field by the, by the barn that was like 50 acres. We took that the first year. Then there was another 60 acres that we, you know, we moved the beef onto the second year. We planted and fenced that in. And then, and then just a few years, a couple of years ago, we took over another 30 acres. So now we have the full 160 acres of land. Okay. Um, but, you know, that 5% for the farm store, you know, that's, again, the first year we didn't open the store until 2016 because we had to do a lot of work on, in 2015 to get the barn up and running and, you know, get the farm store. It was just a garage, an empty garage with a lot of raccoon poop. Um, so it took us a year to get that, pretty much that up and running. And then the sales, it took a few years for the sales really uh, to get going. And, um, but now, I mean, this year we're looking at probably a little over 2 million in sales. So that 5% is a hundred thousand dollars that we're paying just for that 5% piece. And then, you know, then we're paying another, you know, then the land rent on top of that. So it's become a very expensive, <laughs> uh, facility for us still, <laughs> you know, great location, 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 you know, is everything. Um, we did have to, and as I said, we, we, we signed this as a, we designed this as a 25 year lease. And the main reason for that was we knew we were going to be investing a lot of money, not only into that barn, because, you know, they just did the infrastructure. We had to put, you know, plumbing, it had no water, it had no septic system, no, the electrical was on those little knobs. You know, we had to rewire the entire barn. Uh, we had to put a tube and knob. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, we had to put in a, you know, that that barn hadn't been used since the 1960s for milking cows. And so it was pretty, you know, the infrastructure, I mean, the... the, the rough. It was rough <laughs> on the inside. But I mean, everything, once they fixed the roof, it was, it's a beautiful barn now. You know, it's in, it's in great shape, but all yep. the inside was fine. Um, but we had to invest a lot into the fencing, planting pastures. We had to put a new well in. So all that, you know, stuff that we invested, we're like, we got to have this for 25 years to get a payback, uh, payback on our investment. And so, uh, so they were okay. open to that. There's a 10 year. So the first 10 years, uh, if they were to terminate the lease for any reason, you know, other than like non-payment or whatever, then they have to reimburse us for the undepreciated value of our capital investments. Um, so we do oh, keep track okay. of all the capital investments that we put into it. Uh, I mean, most of that happened. Most of the capital investments were in 2015 and 2016. Um, you know, I think we probably, we ended up investing certainly $200,000 or more just in all the things that we did, you know, to the property, uh, to get it up and running. And, um, so that was, it was pretty substantial. And so for that reason, we had to have a long-term lease. Um, and, uh, so far it's been a really good partnership. I mean, other than the fact that I'm paying them so much and I'm trying to renegotiate that 5%, uh, but they're happy as clams, right? Because they're making way more money. Than they <laughs> that were. turned into real money all of a sudden. Exactly. And, <laughs> you know, I think they get a lot of positive feedback from visitors because this is kind of a unique thing. They've got it at one of their forest preserves where they have animals. And, you know, we do a free, tar- a free farm tour every Saturday, which we promised them we would do. And we've done that. 
Um, so people, we take people around on a hay wagon and, you know, take them out to the pastures and all that. And then we do a lot of other events too. We started doing, you know, some farm dinners and we're doing a fall festival here in a couple of weeks, you know, with pumpkin patch. We have a pumpkin patch this year, you know, so we do a lot of things, I think, to enhance the value of their, you know, recreational and and educational value of the forest preserve. So it's been a good, a good partnership, um, over the years. And we have a pretty tight relationship with the board. The president of the board is actually right up the street from us and he comes and visits the farm all the time. And he's all into regenerative agriculture and Joel Salatin, you know, so he's like the perfect guy to have running the, the Kane County board as somebody that knows what we're doing and approves of it, you know. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. It helps immensely. Okay. So at the beginning, at the get go, it sounds like it was sort of halvesies, like the, the forest preserve had to throw in uh, a couple hundred in order to get the barn up and running. You had to throw in uh, a couple hundred to get the other infrastructure up to snuff and ready to roll. So you really kind of split the difference there. And have you just been, did you just, did you have to pay for that all out of cash flow, or did you finance those initial investments some way cliff? How did you, how did you get the leasehold improvements covered? Yeah, so you know that was um, that was something that we we had to come up with. I didn't have, you know, at the time I remember putting together what I thought was a very comprehensive estimate of how much it would cost us to get essentially the barn up to snuff, you know, milking facility in there, electricity, and get the store up and running. And so you know, my estimate, you know, way back in 2015 was that was going to cost us 120 thousand dollars, <laughs> and uh, wow. And, and my and and you know, in retrospect, I should have doubled that because <laughs> that's probably what it cost. But we had to go out, and I didn't have one hundred twenty thousand dollars laying around. Um, so I did. Uh, we did raise capital. Now at that point, our business was pretty small. We'd only been in business for two years, um, two and a half years. I think the revenue our our first year was about seventy thousand revenue. I think the second year that we were probably two two hundred thousand revenue for twenty thirteen. So in twenty fourteen okay. and twenty fourteen when we were trying to raise money, you know that was all that I had to show people. So the banks weren't obviously weren't going to finance us. Um, one thing that I did have some experience from my insurance days that I had been involved in a, a startup company, so we had raised equity capital from investors. So I was pretty familiar with that process. Um, mm. And so I went out to a couple of my friends. I was also fortunate when I worked in the insurance business that I have some friends that are, you know, have nice jobs with nice salaries and they have investable assets, right? So I said, hey, guys, sure. we're, we're and they were super excited about my farm business and they were coming and buying stuff from me. And I said, I'm, I'm going to raise money. Um, would you guys be interested in, you know, and investing in the farm. And it was, I, I mean, for okay. me, it was, it was, I was surprised at how easily it went. I did put together a business plan. It wasn't anything super fancy. I'm thinking it was like 10 pages about what we were going to raise kind of a pro forma financials. This is what I expect us to do in the next five years. And essentially I, we, I offered the investors, there were four initial investors, uh, all of them were friends, uh, 30% of the equity in the new, we formed an LLC. So they, they all bought 30% of the equity. I think, you know, a couple had 10, two had 10 and two had five. 
and I kept the okay. other seventy percent. And then one of my one of my best friends, one of the investors, is also an attorney, which is it's nice to have an attorney friend. So he drew up all the paperwork, the documentation for us. Um, I passed around, everybody signed it. They wrote me a check, and voila, I had one hundred twenty thousand dollars now to uh, invest in the farm improvements. <laughs> Um, so, um, you know, I think it was, it was helpful that they were all friends. And so they weren't, it wasn't like I was going out to, you know, angel investors or people that I didn't know, you know, that didn't know me, you know, the fact that they knew me and we'd been friends for some of us for 20 years, I think was, you know, was made it a lot easier. Yeah. Um, and so that gave us yeah. the capital really to start, you know, putting in the parlor, the septic. I remember, I was like, oh, wow, it's nice having all this money. And then, of course, it went down and it went down and it went down. <laughs> and I'm like, man, how are we going <laughs> to? And I'm like, wow, everything's, especially the electrical work was costing us a lot more money than I had budgeted. And um, so we got to the point where we almost ready to open the store in 2016. I can remember we didn't have enough money to pay the plumber or something. And it was like. God, I got to get the store open. So I ended up having to uh, take out some money from our home ec. We had a home equity line of credit. So I ended up at the time mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, having to dip into that home equity line of credit for like $50,000 just to get the store open and get all the work done that we needed there. And um, and that was even before. And then we spent another 30000 on the well. We had to put a new well in later that year because we were running out of water from the old seven-year-old well that was there. Um, so anyway, it ended up probably ended up costing us probably, I'm sure over $200,000 to get everything done those first two years. And now since then, we haven't had the moral of the story is always raise twice as much as you think you need. (laughs) Well, I think the moral that I've learned is it's, everything's going to take twice as long as you think it will. And it's going to cost twice as much. So go out there, make your best estimate and then double everything. Um, and that's pretty much wow. how it especially in this day and age. Yeah. 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 It's even, it's even, yeah, I would say even more so nowadays when prices are so unstable. Um, but so we this got, is, this is, I think a, a unique approach Cliff. Like I don't, I don't know of too many farmers who do this. Like I know of, you know, companies that own farms that do this, but like, this is, this is kind of cool. I, so when the rubber meets the road, how, how is financing, a growing farm business with investors, equity investors, you know, different from financing it like the old fashioned way through a, a bank or a credit union, right? Like wh- what are the, what are the expectations that the, you know, you know what the expectations are be going to be when it comes to a bank, you know, you need to make a monthly or a quarterly or an annual payment. It's going to be this much with this much interest and it's predictable. But when you're going for investors and equity financing, it's, it's not quite that cut and dried, right? What, how, so what are the expectations that you're being, that you're having to meet for this form of financing? Well, that's good. I mean, I think I, I pretty much spelled out up front that, you know, we're not projecting to make a bunch of money in the next five years. I mean, I told them that, you know, this is going to be a long, slow, you know, uh, enterprise in terms of making, you know, but I said, you know, the plan would be that within five years, uh, you know, when we're actually past the five years, we should be generating sufficient profits 
that we can start doing, you know, uh, annual distribution. So I, that's why, you know, the plan was never that we're going to sell the business and they're going to make, you know, 10 times their initial investment. Um, but I, I position it as this is something that will be you're investing in, you know, business that you support, that you believe in, you know, from uh, you come and get the products. Oh, and they get a obviously they get a discount, on you know, like they get the employee discount on purchase. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> sure, that makes some good sense. <laughs> so that helps a little bit, right? <laughs> um, but um, you know that this will be an income generator for you. You know, and I would say they're all in, investors are probably in the, their fifties now. You know, so they would. This would be something that would be like a retirement income generator that's going to um, make you feel good. You're helping, you know, produce healthy food, and so I I try not to paint it the picture is this is going to be a huge financial windfall for you <clears throat> and i think they yeah. all understood that they all understood that going in that this is going to be more of like you know you would call it a social investor um but mm -hmm. i do we do want to do we do plan on making this a profitable business and i do plan on distributing um you know dividends on an annual basis once we're you know up and going so so that was kind of the expectation. Now, what happened since then is two of the investors decided that they wanted to get out uh, for different reasons. Okay. And so the other two investors ended up buying their shares out at a premium. So they actually made a little money on their investment. So now I'm back. I'm down to just having okay. two investors, um, which is nice. And they're both, again, I've known both of these people for 25 years. And they're very patient and understanding. And one grew up on a dairy farm in Kansas, the, the lawyer. So whenever he's in town, he actually moved back to Kansas a couple of years ago. Whenever he's in town, he comes out, helps us build fences, uh, milk cows, you know. <laughs> so, so it works out well for him. Um, <laughs> and uh, the other one is she's uh, in the insurance business still, but, you know, she – to her, this is just she comes out and gets food every you know few weeks, and you know we chit chat about the kids and all that. So it's it's pretty good. I mean, it's, they're very laid back investors. I'll put it that way. They're not like looking at the numbers every month and saying what the hell's going on here? Why aren't you making more money? Uh, <laughs> so uh, you know that's I think I would caution anybody if they're gonna find equity investors that especially for a farm business that those equity investors you know understand the nature of this slow money business. Right. Um, but, uh, but it's been good. I mean, I'm, I'm glad I did it. I mean, we've, we've thought about, you know, we're talking about expanding the store and opening up a creamery. And, you know, one of the options that we have is to raise more capital and to do that. And I don't, you know, I'm, I've got other really, really super great farm customers that I know are interested in investing in us. And, you know, I'm, I'm okay. occasionally, Maybe I should go out and, and see if they if they want to invest more. If my current investors don't, and I don't know if that's the case, I would have to ask. Got them. it. But I have had actually some of our some of our customers that we've had for a long time have come to me and said, "Hey, if you guys need money, I'd love to invest in the farm." And so it's good to kind of have that in your pocket, you know. And you don't know if that would ever come. It sure through, is, you know. But I've got we've gotten several of our long-term customers have approached me in the past and offered that. So, um, and something to consider, it, you know, right now we don't need any money, but if we do need money, then it would be something to think about for sure. So do you think that you would recommend that, that same approach 
to other farmers because it's relatively uncommon in the farm sector. So would you would you recommend the the equity investor approach to other farmers, especially because this is where it often comes up for beginning farmers who don't really have a ton of cash or 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 an equity position in anything. Um, I mean, I I would. I think it's it's worked out well for us. Um, you know, I think you know. I wouldn't recommend it if you're just starting. Like, I think the fact that we went out to, I think we were probably in our third year of operations and I had a little bit of a better idea then of what our needs were and how the business was evolving and were we going to be able to make money? Is this something that I wanted to do long-term for the rest of my life? So I would say, you know, at the very beginning, you got to get your feet wet, get out there, um, you know, bootstrap your business until you really know, is this what you want to do? You know, are you passionate about it? Are you committed to it? Do you understand, you know, what it's going to take to be successful? Because I wouldn't want to do that and then, you know, go get $100,000 from friends and family. And then two years later, I'm like, man, I'm not going to be able to make money in this or things are a lot more difficult. Because one thing that I've, that I've learned is that everything changes, right? Everything about our business yeah. plan changed over the years. I never would have imagined that we're, you know, operating at the scale we're operating now, never thought that that would happen. And, um, you know, so I think if you have a few years under your belt, then, you know, you know, you have a much better idea of how things are, you know, developing and evolving. So. So you, uh, you, you started, you bootstrapped, you grew, you moved, you got investors, you continue to grow. um, And at this point, You've added another location. You're growing again. Um, and this situation was just about as unique as the way you got into Bruner. Can you tell us a little bit more about your, uh, uh, what would you call it, North Campus <laughs> and how you got into it? Yes, our, our Elkhorn, Wisconsin location. Yeah, so, you know, for probably, you know, I, I mentioned that we had 160 acres at the Forest Preserve and that was the most that they told it, even though that whole entire forest preserve is 700 acres, they said, we're never going to, you can't ever have more than 160 acres. And so okay. what happened was, and, and we had this growing demand for grass fed beef, right? And so we quickly realized, I would say probably in 2017, that we, the demand for beef was way outstripping our capacity to raise beef on, on grass, 100% on grass. And so I, we started looking around for other properties where we could raise, I mean, I mean, the beef don't need a barn, you know, essentially the beef is pretty low maintenance in the sense that they can live on, you know, you need a fence, you need grass and you need water. And so we started looking at other properties close by that we could potentially lease. Uh, we didn't have capital again to buy a hundred acres or 200 acres of land. And especially the land around us is very expensive in that area. And so um, we cast a pretty wide net. And I would say we looked at yeah. probably 20 or 30 properties um, and over the course of those two or three years. And it, we didn't really find something that was a, a good setup for us. So then um, I guess it was probably in 2019 uh, we work with the Dairy Grazing Apprentice Program, you know, so we've got a couple of apprentices enrolled in that. And so the local coordinator is somebody I've known. I think you know Alfred Krusenbaum. 
And Alfred mm -hmm. had farmed, uh, had a farm in Elkhorn, Wisconsin. I'd actually visited it back in 2015 when we were setting up our parlor because he was, and he was milking 150 or so cows up here in a grass-based organic dairy. And he was just getting out of it. He was having some health issues and he was going to have to retire and he was starting to do consulting. So he actually consulted with us. Well, so I knew Alfred, super knowledgeable, bright guy. And I visited his farm up here. He approached me and said, hey, our, our, my old farm is available. And at the time, I didn't realize that it was not his, that it was actually owned by a uh, nonprofit land trust called Yggdrasil Land Foundation. And he said, okay. it's going gonna, it's gonna to become available why don't you and Anna come up and take a look at that and see if you'd be interested? I know you're looking for more land. And I'm like, ah, oh. you know, I told him uh, it's too far away. It's an hour away. And, but Anna talked me into, she's like, oh, let's go take a look at it. We've got a half of a day off. So we drove up <laughs> and met Alfred up there. And we're like, wow, this is beautiful. I mean, I, I didn't recall how nice it was. And it was, you know, it's got a, beautiful pastures everything's fenced in there's lanes to get out of the pastures there's water lines there's a beautiful dairy barn two really nice houses 400 acres i was like this is everything we could ever dream of but it's an hour away you know from our other farm and so we had to we wrestled with that for a while but then we decided to put in a proposal and we had to really compete for this there was other proposals that they were getting from other farmers that wanted you know to uh, lease that land um, mm -hmm. so we had to put in a, we had to write a pretty detailed proposal. We had to have an interview with the board. Uh, we had to send in letters of recommendation from our clients and customers, which was pretty interesting. Uh, it was a pretty rigorous process, but in <laughs> the end, uh, fortunately they selected us, uh, to, um, and they gave us a 30 year lease on this land. It's, it was crazy. I'm like 30 years, I'm 30 years. I'll be like 80. Um, or actually, <laughs> it's almost unheard of. Like that's, yeah. that's wild as far as from a land tenure standpoint. Yeah. But I said, you know what? I still want to be milking cows on a maybe. So that's all right. Um, so it was interesting. Yeah. So <laughs> this is a totally different situation of forest preserve where, you know, essentially this is a, what they call a triple net lease. Um, so we have to maintain all the buildings, obviously maintain the property any infrastructure improvements is on us. You know, anything, anything we want to build or improve, we pay for. Um, okay. But, and then we pay the insurance, uh, on the property and we pay the taxes, the property taxes on the property. And then, and then they have what they call a stewardship fee. So we, and it kind of goes up every year. Like the first year it was zero, this year it was $10,000. Next year, I think it's 15,000. So this is kind of what I would say rent, you know, it's in lieu of rent. It's, they just call it a stewardship fee because it's a nonprofit entity. But I mean, it's been okay. really, a, a, you know, we have 400 acres here. We're actually only grazing 240 acres with our beef herd uh, that's fenced in. We have another two parcels that have 160 acres that we're leasing out to a neighbor uh, just for hay production. Um, we'd like to fence in one of those, the one behind our house. And we live and we decided to move up here. So we live in one of the two houses on this property. Uh, but it's been really, Yggdrasil has been great to work with. They're actually changing the name to Living Lands Trust. Um, I think, you know, the Chaz, oh, who, I know you okay. interviewed Chaz, his, his land is owned by the same foundation. Uh, and they're super yep. great to work with. Really, they're heavily promoting organic production, um, regenerative farming, 
they actually, we, we do have this land certified organic uh, because that's one of the requirements of our lease, even though we don't sell our products as organic. Um, but we did okay. get the land certified <clears throat> and uh, it's great. I mean, it's beautiful up here. You know, it's, we have a pond, we have woods. Um, I mean, th- we want to spend, this is the problem now, Ann and I want to spend all of our time up at this farm and then, you know, then we have to take turns <laughs> meeting down to the other farm to manage the, you know, the craziness down there. Um, but uh, it's been good. It's really been, it took us about a year to get the the whole driving back and forth and the management down. And, um, and you know, we're feeling really good this fall. Everything's growing good. We had kind of a drought up here last year. We didn't get any rain for pretty much the whole summer. Uh, but this year we got rain mm. and everything's green. We made all the hay. You know, we're not going to have to buy hardly any hay this year. We made all the hay that we need for both herds, the beef and the dairy herd, um, this year at this farm up here. We made some actually down at the Bruner farm as well, but it's good. It's a really turned out to be a super great option for us. And again, these are the kind of opportunities. We would never have been able to get this farm if we didn't have the other farm and have, you know, what I'm going to say is a track record of having a viable business, mm-hmm. I think. You know, that was certainly one of the reasons that we were able to win this, you know, win the, the, the battle, so to speak, for this farm was because we had a track record and uh, we had, you know, customers and we, you know, we, we had been doing this for a few years. You know, I think we would, if, if we had been a startup or just starting out, there's no op, we would never have had an opportunity to lease this land. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Yep developing that track record. well so your track record at this point is you know you're running a highly diversified farm business you got multiple locations you've got a boatload of customers you've got many species of animals you've got lots of service providers like you know meat processors and dairy inspection labs and all that stuff but like one of the things that people are um talking the most about right now is employees um it's a it's a it's a big bone of contention here and so i guess the last thing i i'd like to have you speak to cliff is just how are you finding and keeping people that can help you know continue to grow your business and continue to help it succeed and you know do you have everyone you need? Do you need more folks? Like how is the labor thing working out for you right now? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it's certainly our biggest challenge in running this farm is, is dealing with the employees. You know, we have 15 employees now and that's including me and Anna as two of the employees. Uh, but 15 paychecks Mm -hmm. we're writing, you know, every twice a month. And, um, you know, I would say, that is the biggest challenge. I mean, you know, we have a farm store manager and she runs the farm store. So I think there's, she's got five employees, part-timers that help her and the farm store. But now we've got to end up having to have two people in the farm store every day. Uh, and then the rest of the employees are in operations. Wow. We have, I think six full-time operations people and then um, three part-time operations people. Uh, but for sure, you know, uh, managing those employees and training those employees and, and, uh, getting them to be, you know, productive and self-sufficient has been, you know, one of our biggest challenges. 
Uh, ideally, we'd like to have a full-time farm manager at that, you know, our Bruner location. And we thought we had somebody a couple of years ago and we were kind of training and then, um, and then that kind of fell through when he ended up leaving. And, you know, mm-hmm. we we're kind of trying to find the right person. And, you know, on, on the, the good side is we have, we have no problem finding people to start there. Like we get a lot of inquiries from people that are interested in working for us. You know, so I think we have a pretty good reputation mm-hmm. as kind of a, a cool place to work, right? And then we get these people in and we start training them. And a lot of people, it's not what they thought it would be. You know, I think that's the, the biggest, you know, reality check is once they get in there, like, wow, this is hard work. And, you know, you're not going to do this. And, yep, <laughs> Every day, you got to do this. You got to, we got to clean the tank. We got to clean the barn, you know? So I think, you know, those are the, as the dirty jobs, I think that people, you know, don't anticipate when they think about, oh, it would be cool to work at, you know, at a pasture-based farm. Um, So that's, that's kind of where the reality check is. So we've, you know, right now we have a really good crew. Um, We've got two, we just graduated one of our employees, um, Nicole, out of the dairy grazing apprentice program. So she, she was in that program for two years. Nice. And then we've got another apprentice that just started with us. So that's really helped us because we can offer them that. We pay for the classes. You know, to get through the dairy grazing apprentice program requires two years of on-the-job training, which we can provide. But they also get a lot mm-hmm. of education, you know, what I'm going to say, classes, they, and they go to field days, they do book work, they have projects they have to do. To, um, so it actually, they learn a lot more than what we, they would just learn if we were teaching them on the job, you know, dairy nutrition and, and uh, you know, farm finance, pasture management, soils, all that kind of stuff. So it's been a really good partnership. So that helps us a little bit. And then people that enroll in that, you know, we we're hoping that they'll they'll make a long term commitment because it's a two year commitment to the DGA. You know, the big problem we have is we've had a lot of people that we've trained and they've stayed with us for a few years and then they go off and start their own farm. And so, yeah, while we we support that and it's a, it's a good thing, it's it's not always good for us because we're hoping after we spent two years training somebody that they'll stick around for a couple of years and you know help us manage the farm. Um, but it is certainly a challenge. I think, you know, we, we just rolled out a profit sharing program because what we're really trying to do is get everybody involved in understanding our business. And, and, and you know, we started doing these financials for each enterprise. Well, we share that with all the employees. We have a staff meeting every Monday and we sit down and we say, here's where the numbers are last month and here's how sales are this month. And, and we started assigning people to each of the enterprises, you know, on a, a you know, Ideally, on a yearly basis, they're going to somebody's going to be in charge of the pork enterprise, somebody at the broiler enterprise, somebody else the dairy enterprise, to kind of see how we can improve that enterprise. And you know, our goal there is yes to improve the you know profitability of that enterprise, but also to get them involved, more involved in decision making and how things are run. And you know, to hopefully some of those people will say, hey, I want to do this for a living, and will you know somebody will step up and be some that right person to manage the farm um you know i think long term we'd like to have a manager at each of the farms um but that's you know that's a that's a process that it's just going to take us time to get somebody to that point oh yeah time and and matchmaking but i mean it's it's a heck of a unique opportunity that you offer there with uh, the apprenticeship with the production side but also 
a, a very serious look at the, the management side, which is what I think a lot of entrepreneurs who are looking to go into agriculture, specifically value-added agriculture, where they're doing something a little outside the box, they don't realize how much of their effort is going to go towards management and not just, you know, milking the cows. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's, I mean, I would say the biggest, you know, challenge for me is that I like milking the cows and I like moving the cows and I like, I like, really, I like doing the farm work, but really I, I have to spend more and more time doing the management work now and it's tough. I mean, I, I really just have to allocate like a half of a day here and a half of a day there to, to get the financials cut up. And then I'm like, man, I'd love to be outside doing something productive. <laughs> but, you know, it's, <laughs> it's hard. And fortunately, Anna deals with like the employee schedules and everything. She gets super frustrated because everybody's like, oh, I need a day off here. And it's like, oh, I did a change out. You know, so so that's, you know, when you have a lot of employees, you're going to have those issues. You know, you got to have to deal with changing schedules. and They want vacations. We got, you know, one of them's going to go on a baby moon now because his wife is expecting, you know, baby next month. And. You know, you just got to, when you have employees, you have to be able to deal with all of those, those employees that have their needs and wants and, and they need time off and, you know, they have kids that they have to attend to. So it definitely throws a complication into just you and, you know, your spouse or your partner, you know, taking care of the animals. It's it definitely, if you get yeah, to the point where yeah. you need to have a lot of employees, it's going to be challenging. You have to be, you have to be managing those employees. Uh, effectively. And I, I will agree with you. That's so, not a skill that a lot I, of farmers I, have. <laughs> it, yeah. And, and, and I guess what I, what I want you to, um, I, I guess I want the folks who are listening to know that, you know, you're looking. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. If anybody is out there, they have some experience. I mean, you know, you and I have talked about the fact that the most complicated part of our business is the dairy operation. So ideally, we'd love to find somebody that would just be able to manage the dairy operation for us. And, you know, that would be, that in itself is a full time job. Plus, they would have, you know, an apprentice or somebody helping them. But we keep thinking, man, if we could just find somebody that really knows dairy, somebody that grew up on a dairy farm, knows cows, loves cows, you know, that would be a great opportunity. Um and then we can kind of carve that responsibility out of both our schedule and everybody else's and you really have somebody focus on it. I think that would ultimately be a great way for us to, you know, evolve the business, but we just got to find the right person. Um, but it's uh, for sure. That's, that's the challenge of running. The bigger we get, the more employees we have, and then the more management challenges we face, you know, managing those employees. You bet. Entrepreneurship is management and there's yeah. seemingly no way around it, at least no, no way that I know of. <laughs> well, it, it's kind of funny because I think I'm, I think of myself and I'm like, I'm, you know, one of those people that I like to start things. I like to build things, but I get bored easily. Right. So I'm thinking at some point I, I really need to find a good manager that can manage the business and then I can, you know, play around with the other new things that I want to do. You know, I think it's a different mindset. You know, the starting something and managing it for the long term, I think is too, a lot of times the, those skills don't grow on the, on the same person, you know. And so I think that's ideally if we could find somebody to, you know, manage 
each location or manage the dairy operation, then we could take that load sort of off my shoulders and off Anna's shoulders. And I think Anna's the same way. She loves cows. She loves milking cows. She doesn't want to mess with chickens <laughs> or turkeys or pigs, but, um, you know, and she certainly doesn't like to have a whole bunch of employees that are, you know, texting her about changing schedule all the time, but that's, um, you know, that's the nature of the beast, right? <laughs> well, I, I got to say, Cliff, that this has been a, uh, a really honest look at some really unique things that you have about your farm enterprise it's it's such a it's such a cool business it's a it's a successful growing business and it's just got so many unique elements that you know you don't find in every farm so i i just want to say thank you a ton for being so uh open about all of this and hopefully you know conveying some lessons learned to our listenership as well well, no problem. Hopefully it's, it's information that other folks will, that are starting a business or growing a business, a farm business will find useful. I mean, if one thing I can say, it's certainly been an adventure and uh, you know, it's uh, every day is it's exciting because I get up and we have all these different opportunities to grow the business and expand and, and um, improve things. And so that's what I really like is the fact that every day is kind of a new, a new adventure and, and, um, you know, there's problems again every day, but, you know, I always, I'm, I'm one of those optimists that, you know, we'll figure out how to solve the problems. So it's, uh, it's fun so far. Continued good luck to you, Cliff. Thanks, Andy. Thanks for listening. You can get more podcasts by subscribing on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And you can learn more about Edible Alpha and the Food Finance Institute by visiting our website at ediblealpha.org. 